And now, for the show reflecting on classic radio, Hollywood 360, with your host, Carl Amari. You lost your magic. They knocked you off your game. Your Carlness went right out the window. What's with this Carlness? It's not even a, a real word. It's a conjunction of prepositions, a philosophy, a way of life. It's your name with miss attached to it. Bob, listen to me. If you'd have done what I asked you to, and come in my dressing room before the show, you'd have known that you weren't supposed to come out here until I introduced you. Jack, I tried to get into your dressing room, but I didn't have a nickel. I understand you're pretty funny as a DJ. And comedy is a kind of hobby of mine. Well, well, actually, it's a little more than just a hobby. Reader's Digest is considering publishing two of my jokes. Really? Yeah. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Honey Dollar. Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. Quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. Hello, everyone. I'm Carl Amari, and this is Hollywood 360, the radio show that presents the best in classic radio. This time, it's part two of the Martin and Lewis show from 1952. Then, Jose Ferrer stars in a patriotic drama on the Cavalcade of America from 1944. With me, as always, is my co-host, Lisa Wolf. What's up, Lisa? Hi, Carl. Hey, what's happening in Hollywood? So, I want to talk a little bit about the Roseanne spinoff. Okay. Uh, So, we know that the reboot was canceled, Mm -hmm. and that was due to Roseanne Barr's tweets. Yes. And so there's going to be a spinoff. It's ordered by ABC. It is called... I don't know. What's what's the last name of the family? Do you remember? Uh, Yeah. Oh, Roseanne Barr. Right. Well, that would be her real name. (laughs) But on the show, they're the Uh, Connors. The Connors. So close. Anderson, (laughs) like father knows best. Anyways, the Connors is starring the original cast members, which includes John Goodman and Laurie Metcalf, Sarah Gilbert. Not part of the series will be Roseanne Barr, who was the matriarch. Of, of the whole season, yeah. um, of the whole series. So it will begin this fall, Tuesdays, 8 p.m. Eastern time. We do not yet know how her character will be written it's off the show. It's not going to work. I'm telling you right now. It's not going to work? not going to work. I just don't yeah. see it working without her. Well, I really don't. We're going to find out. Some okay, people we'll disagree see. with you, like huh? ABC. I'm guessing <laughs> maybe that's why they're running ABC, and I'm not. That is true. So we can look forward to that and check it out and see what you All think about right. the Connors. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Carl. Last time we began listening to the Martin and Lewis show from September 16th, 1952, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis and their special guest, Rosemary Clooney, here's the conclusion. Jerry, with a beautiful, luscious young girl like Rosemary Clooney, don't tell me you went looking for pomegranates. Nah, I was just kidding. With a gorgeous dish like Rosemary, with those ruby red lips, with that face and that figure. And you thought I was interested in pomegranates. (laughs) Were you? It was the figs and pears. (laughs) Don't you pay any attention to them, Rosemary. I think I understood to come on to my house, and it was a great song. Thank you, Dean. You seem to know quite a bit about music. Well, I majored in music at college. College? (laughs) In grammar school, he couldn't pass manual training. (laughs) Yes, Rosemary, music is my life. And manual training was the dumbest kid in school. (laughs) Jerry, you're behaving like a jealous child. Me jealous? That's ridiculous. Ha ha. Why, I know more about music than he'll ever know. He never wrote a song in his life. Now, Jerry, don't stand there and tell us that you ever wrote a song. Are you kidding? You never heard the song I wrote about the towel girl who died? What's the name of it? It's called, Goodbye, Dirty Gertie, I Ain't A-Gonna Cry, Cause I'll Be Seeing You, Dirty Gertie, At That Washroom In The Sky. 
Hillary. Oh, that's nothing, Dean. You should hear my latest hit. Pass the sterno, baby, and I'll give you a kiss of fire. <laughs> Jerry, now what's wrong with that? That one, I'll have you know, was recorded by Artie Shaw and his all-wife orchestra. <laughs> you know, Dean... I don't know what this kid has, but I hope it isn't catching. Oh, don't worry about that, Rosemary. Don't you worry about that at all. I, look, since we've been talking about songs, this might be a real good time for you to come up with one of your own. Okay. If Dick Stabile will oblige with a botch me beat, I'll botch me very best. Well, good enough. Folks, with the aid of Richard Stabile and his Italian-Swiss colony blue blowers, <laughs> Rosemary Clooney sings, botch me <laughs> me, I botch you, and everything goes crazy. Bah, bah, botch me, my baby, bah, bah, bo, bo. Just say yes and maybe for you. Kiss me and I'm a kiss of you. Tra la 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 Botch me, I botch you, and everything goes crazy. Bah, bah, botch me, my baby, bah, bah, bo, bo. Just say yes and maybe, and then we will raise a great big family. Tra la 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 la. Botch me, I botch you, and everything goes crazy. Bah, bah, botch me, my baby, bah, bah, bo, bo. Just say yes and maybe and then we will raise a great big family. Tra la 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 lee. Be you by oh be you boo. Won't you bat you bat you me? Kiss me. Be you by oh be you boo. When you bat you me, I bat you. Come on, you kiss me. Ba ba bat you me, bambino, ba ba bo bo. Boca Picolino And then we will raise a great big family Be you by oh be you boo Tra la 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 lee Botch me bambino botch me That's nice Oh real wonderful job Rosemary Real wonderful Now Let's all get into grease paint for our next super production as George Fannerman sets the scene. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sure that most of you have seen that fabulous motion picture, The Greatest Show on Earth. However, for those of you who may have failed to see it, our thoughtful stars have prepared their own version of this stirring drama about life under the big top. Dean Martin, Jerry Lewis, and Rosemary Clooney in... The Greatest Schmo on Earth. We have all thrilled to the high-pitched excitement of the circus with its color and glamour, its thrills and chills. But what of the people that make up the circus? How do they live? What do they think? For instance, what does the lion tamer think as he faces those fierce and hungry beasts? Oh, I'm so thrilled. What does the colorful bareback rider think as she rides around the ring on her beautiful white horse? Oh, I'm so excited. What does the courageous acrobat think as he performs his death-defying feats high above the heads of the crowd? Oh, I'm so nauseous. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yes, let us visit the circus and learn the true story. As our scene opens, we find the manager of the circus, John Ringling South. He is talking to Henny, the beautiful bareback queen. Henny, we're in trouble. We've just lost our biggest attraction. You don't mean the great bird wheel. I do mean the great bird wheel. Oh, John, we've <laughs> lost the only man in the world who could dive 2,000 feet into a wet noodle. <laughs> what did he die of? He died of adenoids. <laughs> adenoids? That's not the half of it. They weren't even his. Oh, that's terrible. What will you do? How can we open tonight? Excuse me, I understand you are looking for a new death-defying attraction. Yes, but how did you know? I was standing right outside following the script. <laughs> Maybe he's got something, John. Uh, tell me, kid, have you ever been in a circus before? Sure, I was with a circus all last year. What did you do? I was a midget. But you're six feet tall. How could you be a midget? I lied about my height. <laughs> so you uh, know a lot about circus, huh? Oh, sure. My family were all circus people. In fact, my mother was a bearded lady. She was? Oh, I'll never forget that first time I saw my mother <laughs> with a beard. I looked at her tenderly and said, Gee, Mom, you're Dad. <laughs> look, kid, the circus is a hard, tough life. You look too frail. I don't think you'll like it. Oh, yes, I will. I loved it the last time. Why, every morning I used to get up at the crack of dawn and leap to the task. First, I'd walk into the lion's cage, then the zebra's cage, then the tiger's cage. And when I was all through, I'd look back at a job well done, take a deep breath and say, uh, uh. Kid, listen to me, kid, listen to me. I've decided to give you the chance of a lifetime. You're going to be the star of the show. Will you do it? Anything. I'll do anything. Just tell me. What do I have to do? <laughs> Dive 2,000 feet into a wet noodle. Oh, boy, that's a... Into a wet noodle? <laughs> Come on, this is no time to go soft. It's your big chance. But I... They're waiting for you under the big top. Just tell them you're the new great bird wheel. Go on, Herbie. Well, there he goes. He's climbing up the ladder. He's climbing higher, higher. He's way up there. He's bracing himself. He's getting ready to jump. And there he goes! Oh, poor Herbie. Look at him. He broke two legs, one arm, four ribs, and the whole head is cracked. Speak, Herbie. Say something. All right, now, which one of you moved the noodle? Well, boys, how does it feel to be at the end of your first radio show of the season? Rosemary, radio is always fun when we have nice people to work with, and we couldn't have made a better choice for our first show. Yeah, well, I wish this was a television show. Why? So everyone could see how adorable you are. Why, Jerry, this is a side of you I've never seen. That's one of the nicest things anyone's ever said to me. How can I thank you? What can I do? Hey, Dean, is the next line crossed out in your script, too? Yeah. <laughs> Rosemary, 
You've been a wonderful guest, and uh, thanks for joining us. That goes double for me, Rosemary, and we'll see you on our television show September the 21st. Thank you, Dean and Jerry. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night, Rosie. Well, until next week, this is Dean Martin. And Jerry Lewis reminding you that our latest picture, Jumping Jacks, is now playing at your local theaters. We hope you'll go see it. Good night. Good night, everybody. From Hollywood, you've just heard transcribe the Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis Show. Written by Ed Simmons and Norman Lear. Produced and directed by Dick Mack. With music prepared and conducted by Dick Stabile. This is George Fenneman inviting all of you to join us next week at the same time. And that's the Martin and Lewis Show. Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis starring from September 16, 1952. Their special guest, Rosemary Clooney. That was originally sponsored by Chesterfield, but the commercials were all removed. And that was heard on NBC. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, it's Cavalcade of America. Stick around. More Hollywood 360 after these important messages. Now back to the best in classic radio on Hollywood 360. Welcome back. I'm Carl Amari. This is Hollywood 360 across about 200 radio stations coast to coast. Make sure you check out our website. It is Hollywood360radio.com. If you miss any of our show, a podcast is available at Hollywood360radio.com. All right. It is time now for the Cavalcade of America. This was an anthology drama series. Came to radio in 1935 and lasted all the way to 1953, sponsored by DuPont. They were the sponsor the entire time, Lisa, which is nice, you know. It's like us. We have Cat's Pride as our main sponsor and Remind Magazine. It's very, very nice to have sponsors who support you and enjoy what you do. Now, this was a documented drama of historical events using stories of individual courage, initiative, and achievement with triumphs against all odds, often through technological innovation. Stories were written by the best writers of the era, including Arthur Miller, Stuart Hawkins, Robert Tallman, and many others. The stars included the biggest stars, Orson Welles, Ray Collins, Cary Grant, John McIntyre, Agnes Moorhead, Ronald Reagan... That's right, yeah, Ronald Reagan, President of the United States, <laughs> former, Mickey anyways. Rooney, and Tyrone Power, just to name a few. It was also aired on television from 1952 until 1957. We have an episode now for you from July 3rd, so uh, the day before 4th of July, 1944. This is called My Friend McNair. It stars Jose Ferrer. Let's go back to this CBS broadcast of The Cavalcade of America. The Cavalcade of America, sponsored by DuPont, maker of better things for better living through chemistry, presents Jose Ferrer and Everett Sloan in My Friend McNair. And now, for our play, My Friend McNair. Ours is the story of a symbol of freedom and a man who fought a war for that symbol. Ours is a story of a symbol of freedom which became a living reality to an ex-soldier and the wife of a prisoner of war. DuPont, on the eve of the anniversary of our independence, presents 
My Friend McNair, written by Tammy Cotter and starring Jose Ferrer as McNair and Everett Sloan as Joe Murley on The Cavalcade of America. I am one of those characters who serve you Jabba and crumb buns over the counter at the Deluxe Diner on 3rd Avenue and 22nd Street. Murley's the name. Joe Murley. Pleased to make your acquaintance. What I got in mind is to tell you what happened to me last 4 July. I am not what you might call a patriotic type person, but I got to admit that what happened was not only very interesting, but also very patriotic. It's getting late on the night of the 3rd of July, and the last customer has hit the road. I'm about to close up for the night when the door opens and in comes a messenger girl. Is there a Mrs. Barnes here? You bet. Telegram for you, Connie. Telegram? For me? I don't know anybody who'd send me a telegram. If your name is Mrs. Edward Barnes, it's for you. Oh, don't make with the shakes, Connie. Here, give me the wire. You sign for it. There you are, girlie. Buy yourself a cigar. Thanks. Well, uh, don't you want to read your telegram, Connie? No, Joe. Maybe it's about Ed. Maybe he's... Oh, don't be ridiculous. It's probably your sister got a baby or something. Everybody's sister always gets a baby, and everybody thinks it's something terrible. Here, open it. You open it, Joe. You read it. Uh, sure. Oh. About Ed, ain't it, Joe? Yeah, it's about Ed, Connie. Well, go on and tell me. It's all right. Tell me. Oh, it's, it's fine, Connie. He's a prisoner. A prisoner of war. Oh. Oh, Joe. Oh, what are you looking so sad about? It's swell. He's out of the war. He can't get shot anymore. It's swell, Connie. Stop it, Joe. You don't have to talk. Poor Ed. <laughs> go ahead, Connie. Cry. It's good to get it out of you. What am I going to do, Joe? What am I going to do? You're going to sit down and have a cup of coffee and pull yourself together. I didn't want him to go, Joe. He didn't have to go. Didn't make sense him going or anybody else. The whole war don't make any sense. I hate the war, Joe. I hate what's happened to Ed. I hate what's happened to you. Don't go feeling sorry for me, Connie. Save it for Ed. How can you talk like that? You lost the leg, so how can you talk like that? Maybe that's the reason I do talk like that. Let me tell you something, Connie. I think Ed's in on a good thing. A good thing? Yeah, I'm saying it's a good thing, and I got a piece of plastic where I used to have a leg, so I got a right to talk. A talk is no good. Connie, I want to tell you something. Something I never told anyone before. It's about my friend McNair. What's your friend McNair got to do with me? What's it got to do with Ed? Oh, I don't know, Connie. The only thing I do know is my friend McNair was the only guy ever drew a beat on this war that made me understand it a little bit. There's nothing anybody can say it's going to make me feel it's okay. Well, what can you lose if you listen to me? First time I meet this here McNair, right away I figure he's a little touched in the dome. It's the night we're inducted, and he's lying in the next bunk to me, and he's got a grin a yard wide on his pants. I don't like it. Well, I made it, Joe. What do you mean you made it? Made what? The army. Everybody makes it, McNair. Believe me, it's very not exclusive. Yeah, I know. They turned me down twice on account of my eyes. This time I talked my way in. 
Are you trying to tell me you wanted to put on the little brown suit? Oh, brother, and how? Enlisted? Yep. You came in on purpose? Uh-huh. Now I've seen everything. Uh, pardon me for pointing, but what did you have in mind? Well, evening up the score for a lot of guys. Victims of fascism. Are you a refugee from Czechoslovakia or something? We're all refugees in America, aren't we? Except the Mohawks and the Seminoles. Don't make jokes with me. I'm only asking a simple question. Well, there's no simple answer, Joe. I wish there were. It just happens that I've seen this war coming for a long time, and I've had a stake in it for a long time. A friend of mine got killed in Spain. Hitler gave it to some more in Austria, the London Blitz. I couldn't sit by. No, I guess you couldn't. How about the way you know people in all those places? I'm a writer, Joe. For the movies? No. No, I write about history. American history. Sounds pretty horrible. Maybe it is. But I like it. I was in the middle of a book, and I'm keeping on with it. Yeah, what's the book about? The bell. The Liberty Bell. Remind me not to read it. Might not be as bad as you think, Joe. Might give you some idea what you're doing here. Might make it easier. Might make it finish sooner. This I am for. You won't believe this, Joe, but the guys who wanted the Liberty Bell in 1751 are just like the guys sleeping in this barracks. What? Sure. Take Isaac Norris, for instance, the fellow who wanted it the most. He was just an ordinary guy, but he wanted to make his passion for liberty concrete and loud. Turn off the record, McNair. I am not interested. I'm going to knock off some sleep. And that's the first portion of the Cavalcade of America. More after these words. Now back to the best in classic radio on Hollywood 360. Now back to the Cavalcade of America. Well, that's how it started, Connie. Oh, this is silly, Joe. You and McNair... What have you got to do with me? What have you got to do with Ed? Well, I'm coming to it, Connie. Believe me, kid, I think it's going to help. Words can't help, Joe. Yeah, that's what I figured. But McNair's words did, after I got used to him. First, I thought he was nuts. Nuts about that Liberty Bell. Because I get my ear chewed off about it for breakfast, dinner, and supper. Even when I didn't want to listen, I heard all the facts about that bell. You know what they wanted to write on it? I don't care, Joe. Proclaim liberty throughout the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. Quite a hunk of words, huh? Joe, are you crazy? What are you telling me about the Liberty Bell for? Funny thing, Connie. That's exactly what I said to McNair when we was on a quartermaster detail on the railroad siding, unloading hundred-pound sacks of potatoes. <laughs> are you crazy, McNair? What are you telling me about the Liberty Bell for? Okay, I'm sorry. I'll stop. You're positively cuckoo on this subject, ain't you? Yeah, a little. Somebody dropped you on your coconut. It's in my blood, Joe. It was my great-great-great-grandfather McNair who sent that bell ringing down the ages. Are you kidding? It's the McCoy, Joe. Well, my great-great-great-grandfather was a well-known horse thief. Oh, enough with these potatoes already. I can't do any more, McNair. I'm pooped. Okay, sit down. I'll do the rest. What are you giving me? You're a writer. You can't jerk these tubers around. I wasn't a writer, Joe. I was wrestling champ at Harvard. 
You wrestle for the Harvard? Yeah, now I'm wrestling for the Uncle Sam's. Boy, the way you pick up those sacks like they were marbles. This is very hard for me to believe. Hey, I'm getting very impressed with you, McNair. Oh, impressed enough to listen to a little more history, Joe? Well, to give my dogs a rest, I would listen to anything. Start up with that uh, Liberty Bell again, McNair. I'm ready. Okay. Uh, we almost didn't get it. It was a close decision. How is that? Well, it happened something like this. In Philadelphia, one fine winter morning, the assembly met to vote on the Liberty Bell, and the speaker had to keep pounding his gavel for order. Then he cleared his throat and said sternly, Gentlemen, gentlemen, the clerk will read the result of the vote on the resolution to procure a bell of a weight of about 2,000 pounds, the cost of which we presume may amount to 100 pounds sterling, to be hung in the belfry of the State House. How did it come out? In favor, 141. Opposed, 132. That was a photo finish. I bet there was murder. Well, there were certainly a lot of people who hoped something would happen. Uh, like, for instance, what? Well, they hoped perhaps it wouldn't ring. You see, Joe, some wanted the bell to shout liberty through the air in a loud, clear voice. And others wanted that voice to crack. Well, come on, give on. What happened? Well, the bell was made in England and shipped to Philadelphia. So they decided to test it in the courtyard before hoisting it into the tower. Guess it was a heavy hunk of tin, all right. <laughs> you bet. They struck at it with a hammer. Bong, it went. And then, bong again. And then suddenly, it croaked like a frog. No. Yeah. The first Liberty Bell was cracked. I don't care whether the Liberty Bell was cracked or not, Joe. It hasn't got anything to do with me. Now, please, Connie, I'm not just beating my gums. Maybe McNair will help you. There ain't anything else you can do, is there? No, Joe. There's nothing else I can do except just sit and wait. Just wait for Ed to come back. If he ever does. He'll come back if you believe in something. You gotta believe in something, namely to wit the way those guys believed in something. Like McNair was telling me when we're sitting on the deck of a transport in the North Pacific, a whole bunch of us, and a special service officer puts up a nose bullet. Hey, says we're getting close to Bizzerti. Yeah, we've been in Italy in a month. You're out of your mind. Mussolini will never give up. They bombed Malta again last night. Malta? Did I ever tell you, Joe, that the fellow who made the Liberty Bell was born in Malta? Ah, oh, please, with that Liberty Bell again. Joe's your pigeon, McNair, but if I hear one more word about that silly bell, I'll push you overboard. Now, listen, gents. I am not an excitable type person, but this dialogue I am not fond of. He's got you nuts, too, Joe. This is my own personal private business. If McNair wants to talk about the Liberty Bell, he talks. And you listen. Blow it out, you jabobo. Me for the PX and a chocolate bar. Wait ah. for me. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for coming to my defense. Oh, salami. Whether you know it or not, you believe in freedom of speech the way they do in Malta. That's why Hitler's wasting his time. On this, I would not be willing to bet my allotment check. Joe, you can kill people with bombs, but those that are left fight better. Fight more. That apply to the Japs and Germans, too? No, it applies only to people who are fighting to keep or get the rights without which life is worthless. You will have to pardon me, my friend McNair, but this sounds to me like rice pudding. Sure, because you've never been without those rights. You take it all for granted. The letter carrier that brings your mail and the man who takes your garbage. 
the free clinic and all the rest. Men invented them and died for them. And they have to keep on dying for them. I should die for a letter carrier? Exactly, Joe. I've made it simple. You've made it even simpler. I wonder if any of them are left on Malta. Who? The Maltas? No. No, the Pass family. The Pass family? You're not listening, Joe. Of course I'm listening. You just said... You're kidding. (laughs) Go ahead, McNair. What about the Pass family? John Pass made the Liberty Bell. He took the original one and melted it down and came up with another one in January 1753. Ah, so at last we finally got ourselves a bell. Did it work? It worked. But even John Pass didn't know how well. Even John Pass didn't know that he had created a bell that would ring forever. And your great-great-great-grandfather rung that bell? (laughs) He sure did. The first Andrew McNair was quite a guy. But his wife Sally could wind him around her little finger. (laughs) Things don't change, do they? I guess they don't. Sally wasn't opposed to her husband's political ideas. She was afraid of them. Afraid of the future. Uh, How about him? Him? I am afraid of nothing I help shape, was the way he put it. It is when matters are left to chance that I am afraid. Afraid and angry. Say, he sounds like a president of quite a few colleges. No, Joe, he was self-taught. A blacksmith. Yeah? Yeah. And on special occasions, he would ring the bell on the old meeting house. Oh, a a part-time job, huh? Can't you figure out why? Oh, a buck here, a buck there. Shilling, Joe. About 20 cents. People wouldn't do it today. Guys only figure that way in history. It wasn't history when it happened, Joe. It was everyday stuff. The first McNair was like anybody living today. He could have driven a hack or run an elevator or made pants. People in history don't make pants. They're always generals or presidents or kings. No, Joe, it's the ordinary people who make history. Only nobody ever writes about them. When they do, they put them on a pedestal. Take Tom Jefferson, for instance. He was just an ordinary guy. Not so ordinary. He wrote the words, didn't he? The words of the uh, Declaration of Independence? Say, I thought you didn't know anything about history, Joe. Well, Natch, but uh, everybody knows the Declaration of Independence. Oh, do they, Joe? Well, uh, how's it go? Well, uh, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which... Oh, uh, this here thing happened on the 4th of July. No, no, on the 8th. On the 8th? Yeah. On the 4th, it was read to the Continental Congress, but the people of Philadelphia didn't hear it until four days later. Look, uh, you mind if I read you something, Joe? Uh, this is the part I'm up to now. I ain't going nowhere. Proceed. <laughs> okay, wait a second. Uh, here we are. They stood in the belfry, Sally and Andrew McNair, listening to the Declaration of Independence. Sally's voice was strange. What does it mean, Andrew, she asked. Andrew spoke gently. It means we're free, Sally. And our son, and his, and even his. Sally's eyes hardened. But it means something else, she cried. War and death and hate. What good is a freedom that costs so much? Sally, he said so very quietly, don't you see that you pay double the price if you don't fight? This war, this, this revolution are not our choice. They are forced upon us. And we accept the battle or we accept the chains. Our son will not look well in chains, Sally. She looked at her husband and said, 
No, Andrew. Our son will not look well in chains. She looked toward the courtyard. And then she cried desperately, Andrew, it's time. He's finished reading. Ring the bell, Andrew. Ring the Liberty Bell. That's beautiful, Joan. Real beautiful. I told you my friend McNair was quite a citizen. Where's he now, Joe? Do you ever hear from him? Well, uh, not exactly. Not by mail. But, uh, there are other ways, Connie. What do you mean, other ways, Joe? I wasn't going to tell you this part, Connie, but I'm started and I can't stop. McNair and I climbed down those nets at 6.26 a.m. in the morning and got on that LCI headed for the beaches of Attu. It was raining like nothing you ever saw in your life. Only you couldn't see nothing because the fog was like smoke. And the motor of that landing craft kept spluttering. I was standing right up close to McNair. Hey, McNair. Would you mind going back and seeing if you can find my stomach? I left it on the ship. You'll be able to get it yourself soon. Won't take long to clean this out. Don't give me no pep talks, McNair. I'm not in the mood. You know what I think, Joe? I think a whole lot of guys are watching us. I can hardly see you. How can anybody else? I don't know. I still think so. My great-great-great-grandfather McNair and his wife Sally and a lot of others. McNair, you're the world's champion open and closed screwball. And all I can say is you better close your face before I push a grenade in it. Save it for the Japs. Look, we're almost there. How long have we been here, Joe? Too long. Looks like we've gotten separated from our platoon. That sniper's trying to separate us for good. And we gotta get out of here. Yeah, if we follow the ridges, the medics will soon be sorting our dog tags. Well, then we don't follow the ridges. But I'm a soldier, not a mountain ghost. They've set up a machine gun. Oh, fine. That puts him in command of this valley. I will never get up. I'm willing to settle for back, not up. Listen, Joe. If we can scale along that cliff line, we can get behind them. A few grenades and the pass is clear. You do all the scaling in this outfit. You got a lot of goats helping you personally. I'm all alone. Okay, Joe. Here I go. Hey, McNair. Wait for me. Hey, McNair. You're crazy, McNair. Then go back, Joe. You think I'd let you go alone? You'd come back with poison ivy. Stop talking, Joe, and start climbing. This is far enough, ain't it? Yeah, just about. Here we go. This one's for you, Grandpa. Hit that dirt, Joe! There they go to that Jap ancestors. Now, Joe, there's one behind you. No! Hey, McNair. McNair, did he get you? Yeah, Joe. In the belly. Uh, well, that's his last belly, believe me. <sighs> you handled that bayonet like they tortured, Joe. I had a little trouble getting it away from him. He, give me a slight scratch. Get, get yourself a powder out. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting it. And I'm putting it on you. 
Hear something, Joe? Artillery? Something else. The wind. I hate to say it, Joe, but I hear a bell. No bell, McNair. No bell in a thousand miles. Yeah, Joe. I hear it ringing. I don't hear nothing. I'm pulling the rope, Joe. All those who fight and have fought and will fight, they're pulling it too. Oh, please, McNair, please. You'd get a hammerage. It's a warning to all those who hear. We won't be slaves. We won't stand by and watch while the few try to destroy the many. We won't, will we, Joe? Please try to keep quiet, Can will you? hear the bell? It's louder, Joe. It's ringing clear and free now. Joe, if you can't hear it now, you will someday. Some 4th of July, maybe, or the night before you die. But someday you'll hear it. Someday. You'll hear it. Well, Connie, did you ever hear such a thing in your life? No, never. Always with the Liberty Bell until he died. Can you tie it? Did you ever hear the bell, Joe? I don't think so. Wait a minute, Joe. I hear it. I swear to you, I hear it. I hear it ringing. You do? This will make my friend McNair very happy. Thank you, Jose Ferrer and Everett Sloan. This evening's Cavalcade Orchestra was conducted by Donald Burries. Barbara Weeks played the role of Connie. This is Roland Winters sending best wishes from Cavalcade sponsor, the DuPont Company of Wilmington, Delaware. Monday night is good listening on NBC. May we suggest that next Monday evening you tune to your NBC station to hear the Firestone program, Information Please, the Bell Telephone Hour, and the DuPont Cavalcade of America. The Cavalcade of America, sponsored by DuPont, came to you from New York. This is the National Broadcasting Company. And that's the Cavalcade of America from July 3rd, 1944, with my friend McNair, starring Jose Ferrer. That was sponsored by DuPont, as heard on CBS. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, it's more of Hollywood 360. More Hollywood 360 after these important messages. Hi, this is Sarah Knight-Adamson. I'm the national film critic for the website sarahsbackstagepass.com. I'm a member of the Broadcast Film Critics Association in L.A. and a voting member of the Critics' Choice Film Awards. Coming up next, you'll hear a film review of a movie that's playing near you. Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. It's rated PG-13. It's action, adventure, science fiction, and fantasy by Universal Pictures. The film starts three years after the theme park, Jurassic World, was destroyed by the dinosaurs. Humans abandoned the island, leaving the surviving dinosaurs to fend for themselves. When the island's dormant volcano starts to erupt, Owen, Chris Pratt, and Claire, Bryce Dallas Howard, start a campaign to rescue the remaining dinosaurs. Let's take a listen. I know why we're here. A rescue op. 
saves the dinosaurs from an island that's about to explode. What could go wrong? Owen is driven to find Blue, his lead raptor, who's missing in the wild, and Claire's along to help. Here's another clip. These creatures were here before us. And if we're not careful, they're going to be here after. Run! You know me. The bottom line? I'm in. Three stars out of four. Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard have such great chemistry together, and I enjoyed their comical banter. They carry the film throughout. Playfully, she says, you're a better man than you think you are. His reply, you should write fortune cookies. As in all Jurassic films, dinosaurs take center stage. Check out all of my reviews and interviews on sarahsbackstagepass.com. See you next week. Now back to the best in classic radio on Hollywood 360. Next time, it's The Adventures of Red Rider from 1946, plus Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden as Connie Brooks. That's next time here on Hollywood 360. We'll see you then.